Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing the love of Christ, showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of His amazing love. Now here is this week's message. Uh, we're continuing in a series looking through the book of 1 Samuel, and eventually we'll get to 2 Samuel. Uh, but I wanted to start by asking a question that may apply to some of you um, it may not, uh, but how many people have ever been hired to a position, a job, knowing that you're going to replace someone there? Anyone? No one. That, that's weird. But, um, I, I mean, it actually happened to me in reverse. Someone was hired to replace me, and I had to train them. But let me ask this question. If you were, let's say you were hired to a position uh, where you had to go into it knowing that once you were hired, you were going to replace someone, uh, how many would still do it knowing that person is going to be without a job? How many would still take the job? If it was a good job for you, good money, the job you wanted, hours, days, two, one, two, honest people in the room, three, honest people in the room. Okay, because four. All right. I mean, think about it. It's a job. You know, yeah, you'd take it. Yeah. Here's, here's, here's the pushing question, though. Would you take the job if you knew that person was going to be out of money and maybe homeless in like 30, 60, or 90 days. Would you still take the job? No? Nobody would? Okay. More information. Why they're replacing them. They could be quitting, but we're going to go with they suck at what they do. <laughs> Sometimes they don't. Sadly, I was told, train him, he's going to be replacing you. Uh, but I, I did the, you know, the Christian thing. I did a good job of replacing them. No problem. Uh, now, here's the other question. What if you knew the person that was hired, or you're the person, you're going to be hired, and you're going to replace them, and it's not just that they're going to end up homeless, but maybe they're going to end up, bear with me, dead. Would you, would you take the job? Perfect job for you. Money's right, whatever, but you know they're going to end up I'm the only savage in the room. Okay, all right, so here's, here, here's the deal, because this is, what, this is literally what happens uh, in the book of 1 Samuel at the, at the portion we're at. Uh, and remember, this, this is a book about the sovereignty of God, right? God's sovereignty over people, God's sovereignty over kingdoms, God's sovereignty over all the nations, even though they don't acknowledge him. And what, what happens is... Um, God is communicating to the nation of Israel, hey, I'm, I'm the sovereign one, I'm the leader, uh, you know, I'm God, which is what he's been telling them since he brought them out, out of Egypt. And he has instituted priests uh, over uh, the religious and ceremonial portion of how they offer forgiveness and how they interact with God, right? Makes sense. But the priests begin to abuse their power and their authority. So what, what we're going to see at the priests were stealing from people and from God, we see that today, and, and it hopefully it infuriates you like it infuriates me, that when people look at uh, religious leaders that they trust and they want to put their hope in, and those religious leaders steal. And it wasn't, and, and I, I think it was, was it last month? I, I feel like every six to eight weeks, this isn't even nationwide, just in the local Pittsburgh area, we hear about another church where an administrator, a secretary, a pastor, a treasurer, somebody stole either 
thousands, tens of thousands, or millions of dollars from the church. And yes, they're stealing from people, and they're stealing from God, but the priests were also misusing and abusing their authority. They were literally threatening people because instead of taking up tithes and offerings and, and monetary things, what they had was the sacrificial system. So people would come, and they would offer sacrifices, and a portion of the sacrifice, the best, was supposed to go to God. And then a portion would go back to the family, and they had to consume it. And then a portion would go to the priest. And I have no problem, I've said this before, with pastors getting paid for what they do. But if we ever went back to a meat-based pay system, I would not have a problem with that, especially lamb and ox. And, and I was, which reminds me, there's burgers and hot dogs for after. Yeah, that's where I was going with that. Thank you, Jesus. But... Um, also, they were threatening the people. They were like, not only were they taking bigger portions, they were threatening and saying, if you don't give me the bigger portion, they were going to harm them or do something to them. And, and we see that today where pastors and priests misuse their authority. They abuse their authority. But then this is the worst one. Uh, they were taking advantage of women, right? Women were coming to volunteer and work at the temple, and the priests were taking advantage of. And you see that today, too, where pastors and priests and all that are taking advantage of people and women and children, and it's unforgivable uh, in the sight of God. So God told Eli, who was the high priest, hey, you need to get this right, because it was his sons who were working in the church and were doing it. And the people said, dude, Eli, do you not understand what's going on? You need to get your sons right. And he doesn't. So God finds Samuel, who we talked about over the last couple of weeks, and brings him into a position to replace Eli. And we're going to read about what happens. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 3. If you don't, uh, there should be one under your chair, left, right, somewhere of you, somewhere near you. Uh, and in 1 Samuel, chapter 3, now we're going to read through a portion of this. And then because of how much ground uh, I want to talk about, we're going to put a lot of the verses on screen. Uh, but in 1 Samuel, chapter 3, this is what it says. Uh, start down, jump down to verse 7. For sake of time, I'm going to be jumping around a lot, but jump, drop down to verse 7. It says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And, and what this is, is he had, we read and talked about how he worshiped as a little child. He worshiped God, but he didn't have the relationship with God. He knew that this is what I'm supposed to do to reach and connect with God, which is great because we talked about how more families and parents should be raising their children that way, but then there comes a point where, hey, I can't just go on my parents' religion. I've got to forge my own relationship with God. And then the Lord called Samuel a third time, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. And basically what was happening was he was asleep. Uh, he's a child somewhere between five and seven, eight, nine, maybe years old. He's asleep, and then God calls to him. He doesn't know who it is, so he wakes up, he runs into the other room. He says, Eli, you called me, because Eli's the priest there, and Eli is like, dude, it wasn't me. He does that again. Eli's like, go back to sleep, stop waking me up. But then the third time he does it, Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go lay down, and if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your serpent is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Then verse 10 says, the Lord came and stood there, Calling is at the other time, Samuel, Samuel, and just a side note, I, I know a lot of people say, yeah, I can hear the audible voice of God, and I believe God speaks to people today, uh, and you need to listen to that voice, but when God shows up, you definitely need to listen to him. 
Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. He said, at that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. And here's the thing. God told him that he was going to judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. And that word contemptible, uh, the Hebrew word, sometimes is translated vile. Sometimes it's translated as uh, blasphemous or despised or cursed. And Jesus made it very clear. He said, hey, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, who is God, unacceptable, unforgivable, and a lot of people say, well, I don't understand that. And I can see the same thing. And I get people that talk bad about me all the time. Floyd, your preaching sucks, or you don't dress right, or this, that, and the other. I could care less. We can still be friends. Hopefully you get over it. But if you say something about my wife, then yeah, we, we, we no longer have a need to try to connect or be friends. It's unforgivable. And God is the same way. Jesus said, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit... It is unforgivable. And then verse 14 says, therefore, this is God saying, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning, opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but then he calls him and he ends up telling him this whole thing. And what we don't understand is there are some things, not all things and not a lot, that God says, I just cannot forgive. Blaspheme of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I can't forgive that. But another thing that God can't forgive is the continual ongoing rejection of God. Now, that doesn't mean that the forgiveness of God isn't available to all. It is. But if you continually reject him, he's not going to force you to receive his forgiveness. He's not going to say that it's mandatory that you be forgiven. But if you continually reject him, He's going to be like, okay, have it your way. Now, the other thing is, uh, let me share this quickly. Uh, God also says that teachers and pastors and priests, they're going to be judged more harshly than other people. As a pastor, don't necessarily agree with it. But as a pastor, I can see where he's coming from. Because James, who's the brother of Jesus, this is what he writes. Uh, and James was one of the people, and I don't remember what it's called, when you try to have a family member committed because you think they're mentally unstable. That's what James and his brothers did to Jesus. But then Jesus showed up after the resurrection, and James was like, okay, apparently I was wrong, right? And James writes this in uh, James chapter 3. He says, not many of you, and this is the amplified version, should become teachers or self-constituted censors and reprovers of others because that's what a teacher is supposed to do, especially when it comes to the word. Hey, if you're taking something not right, and I talk to people a lot who do this, or you don't quite understand, then it's our job to say, hey, this is actually what this means, thus saith the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do. Not in a harsh way, not in a disrespectful way, not in a demeaning way, but in a truthful way. And he says, my brethren, for you know that we, teachers, will be judged by a higher standard and with greater severity than other people, thus we assume the greater accountability and the more condemnation. And we talked about last week how when the time of the judges ended, the very last verse, even though it said it throughout the book of Judges, is that everyone did what was right in their own minds because Israel didn't have a king. 
And the same is true today with congregations. Every congregation does, hey, well, this is the way I'm going to interpret this, or this, even though God says this is not allowed, I'm going to say it is, and God's going to judge the teachers with a harsher standard because we're misrepresenting him. Now, uh, drop down to verse 19. It says, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. He's going to end up being a priest as well, but a prophet of the Lord, literally meaning, thus saith the Lord. Here's what the Lord says. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Now, we didn't read it, but if you look at verse 1, it says that God didn't show up too often. It says that visions were rare because there weren't people who were looking to hear from God. Now God had a point person who wanted to hear from God, who wanted to share the integrity of God's word with the people, and God was like, yeah, I'll come down. Tell them this, tell them that, tell them this. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. And the Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. And basically what happened, this is what happened. Whenever uh, someone invaded the town, what was supposed to happen is the people were supposed to seek God and say, hey, God, we trust you. We know that you have our back. We're going to go fight on your behalf because we're your people and this is your nation. Instead, what was happening was the people would say, hey, we got to go to fight. Uh, God's presence is in the ark. Send the ark out and God will take care of it. They were kind of doing what uh, most people do is, hey, you know what? I'll kind of show up in church. Um, I'll do my homework while I'm in church, and then I'll leave, and I'm doing the thing that God expects me to do, but I'm not doing the thing that God wants me to do. I'm not interacting with God. So they would send the ark out. They wouldn't really worship God, and they got their butts kicked. Uh, I'm going to put the next couple of chapters up on screen as we go through them quickly. Uh, in chapter 4, it says this. It says that, so the Philistines fought. The Israelites were defeated. Every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Because God said, hey, these were the two sons of Eli who were the priests that were abusing their authority, mistreating and abusing women, and stealing from God. And God said, hey, I'm going to cut your family off because you didn't step in and you didn't take care of this, Eli, when you had the opportunity to. And they're doing this saying, yes, we're the priests of God. They're supposed to be representing me, and they're not. And, and this is the same as true today, that the consequences of rejecting God's sovereignty, we lose God's safety, we lose God's peace, and we lose God's presence. And again, God's not going to force anyone to be a part of his kingdom, but those who are outside of his kingdom and want to stay outside of his kingdom, he's going to let you deal with all the things that come with that. And what happens is most of the people who are supposed to be like, uh, I don't want to say just atheists, but lots of people who say, you know, I don't believe in God, that's okay for you, that's not for me, they're the same people who when tragedy comes, they say, where was God, why did God allow this to happen? The same people who look and say, you know what, uh, you know, you can do your church thing, you can do your God thing, are the same people that ask, but where was God when this shooting happened, when my child got sick, when my mom got sick, when my husband got sick, when I lost my job to that jerk teenager who I had to train to take my place? The 
he wasn't a jerk. But anyway, but that, that, that's the same people that say, where was God then? Right? I don't want anything to do with God, but when stuff happens, where were you, God? Now, the same, there's also the people that appear to be Christians. They show up in church. You know, they, they've been going for 20, 30, 40 years, but they don't have that relationship with God. And then when they leave, their friends who aren't Christians kind of look and say, outside of your Sunday experience, I don't see you there, but throughout the week, you do the exact same thing. There's nothing different in your life as a Christian than there is in my life, and I'm not. Why is that? But then when tragedy strikes, those same people are the ones that say, hey, where was God when I lost my job, when my family needed you, when all of this happened? And there are people who look and they see, and I get it. Some people are like, well, I don't have enough evidence to look and to say, you know, there's this God thing and, and, and I should enter into this relationship with him. But that's different when you have people who actually see God moving in your lives. When you show up and say, yeah, I lost my job and God did this, or, or, or this happened and God did this, or, you know, my, my son, my mother, my brother, my father, whatever was sick, and God healed them because I prayed. And you're sharing your story, not this story, not a, a biblical story, your story of God interacting in your life, then it's hard for people to say, well, I don't know about this God thing. You're like, you don't know, but I'm experiencing it every single day. And that's what happened with the Philistines. They were experiencing, they watched God's supernatural hand, not on the Israelites, in their nation, and they still rejected God. Really quick, 1 Samuel chapter 5, this is what it says. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. So they, they won the battle, they took the ark, they put it in their temple, and then uh, Dagon is uh, the, some say the equivalent of Baal, the Canaanite god Baal. Some say he's the father of the Canaanite god Baal. Uh, he's a Philistine god of fertility. He had the body, the statue had the, like the body of a fish, but the head and arms of a human, which I could see some people hanging on their walls in their trophy room, but that, that's kind of like what he looked like. And so uh, they worship this God as their, like, overarching main God. And I think it's the, uh, the book of First Maccabees that actually talks about this wasn't just now in, like, 1000 B.C., but as late or early, depending on how you want to say, as 147 B.C., they record Dagon still being worshipped, okay? So they took the ark, they put it in their temple, and when they put it in their temple, this is what happened. Verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. Now, I want to make sure that you kind of get and understand exactly what's happening. So they have in their temple, I know this isn't a fish and whatever, this is, this is what they're representing, this is their God, right, this statue. They have it in their temple, kind of like you walk into churches today. There's a cross, all that kind of stuff. So they had this in their temple that they worshipped at. Then they captured the ark, and they put the ark right next to it. And they got up the next morning, and they found theirs knocked over. So what they did was they picked it up, they put it back, right? But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon falling on his face again, but now his head and his hands had been broken off, and they were lying on the threshold. So it was almost as if God was saying, look, let's, let's, let's get it clear. Okay? There's only room for one God. 
and it's me, not this statue. And literally the hands and the head were like cut off with precision, which, you know, if you watch enough movies, you can see how that would be done. Uh, and, and all that was left was this fish-like body like God saying, you realize you're just worshiping an animal that I created. And then uh, they, uh, that is why it says to this day, neither the priests nor any others who enter the temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. So they looked and they said, okay, there's, there's something obviously supernatural going on here. And there was an ongoing consequence that they did. But also the Lord's, uh, Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. They brought devastation on them, and he afflicted them with tumors. And depending upon which translation you read, the Hebrew word, uh, most people translate it into um, hemorrhoids. I don't think, and I could be wrong, God is cruel enough to inflict a whole city with hemorrhoids. I thought it would be funny if he did. But it also could be just tumors, like, you know, tumors that people get in their neck or their head or whatever, that kind of thing. And, and then it says that the Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send to him? So they called all their religious leaders around because every time that the people in Ashdod said, look, you know what? Hemorrhoids are coming. Mice were actually running around too. We think this is because of this ark, so we're going to send it from Jefferson Hills. We're going to send it to Elizabeth, right? The people in Elizabeth, the same thing happened to them. They said, you know what? We're going to send it over to West Mifflin. The people in West Mifflin said, nope, let's send it down to Bell's Vernon. And everywhere they sent it, this kept happening. So they called the religious leaders from their community together and said, what should we do? What guilt offering should we send to him, meaning the God of this ark? And they replied, send five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your ruler. So the, the religious folks who didn't believe in the God of Israel we're acknowledging that the God of Israel was the cause of this and telling the nation of the Philistines, hey, you guys need to send a guilt offering to God because you made him mad. And then it says, make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country. Give glory to Israel's gods and perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your God and your land. And then this, this is the most amazing part. They say, why do you harden your hearts? as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did. How many remember Ten Commandments, right? Charlton Heston, still the best one ever made. And they said, hey, this is three to 400, probably closer to 350, 300 to 350 years later. And these religious folks who don't believe in God acknowledge what God did 350 years prior. But still are willing to say, but we acknowledge he is God. We just don't want him as our God, right? And the consequence of rejecting God's sovereignty is you lose God's safety along with his peace and along with God's presence, right? Now, uh, this is what happens next, First Samuel chapter 7. Then Samuel said, now they went back to war. So they sent the ark back. The Israelites took the ark back. They rejoiced that they had the ark back. Samuel said, we got to change something here. Because if we're going to be the people of God, then we've got to be the people of God. And they got rid of all the other idols. They started worshiping God. Uh, the Philistines came to attack. They were about to go to war again. Instead of just sending the ark out this time, Samuel says, hey, let's assemble at Mizpah. I'm going to intercede with the Lord for you. And then they assembled. They drew water and poured it out before the Lord, which is a way of offering, extending an offering. And then on that day, they fasted and they confessed. We've sinned against you, Lord. 
So this time they said, hey, instead of just saying, hey, we're going to send the ark out, we're going to do what we're supposed to do and acknowledge this is your kingdom, God, and we're your people, and we've sinned against you, but we need you. And then while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle, but that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines, threw them into such a panic that they were routed before their So when they said, hey, we're going to show up and worship you and acknowledge your sovereignty, then God showed up and said, then I'm going to defend you and protect you as my people. And then it says, the men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah, and they pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. And then it says, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shannon. How many of you remember that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? Yeah, we still sing it here, still a great hymn. And there's a part in that song that says, and now I raise my Ebenezer. And this is where that comes from. It's acknowledging God's blessing because Samuel said, hey, the only reason we were victorious was because of God. So he put up a stone as a monument and called it Ebenezer saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel territory. And throughout Samuel's lifetime, hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Because throughout Samuel's lifetime, he would go back and say, nope, 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 you guys are straying again. Remember, we're God's people. So we have to live in a godly way. We have to acknowledge God is our king. And then we'll receive the blessings of God. Right? And he kept reminding them that, hey, consequences of accepting God's sovereignty and accepting God as your king is, yeah, you gain his safety, his peace, his presence, his mercy, his grace, his love, and you gain his forgiveness. But what do you think happens, which typically happens, after a while, because people get complacent. And we talked about this before. Turn to chapter 8, because I want you to read this for yourself. First Samuel chapter 8. Even though God kept showing up for them, this is what we read in First Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel, just like Eli had done. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice, just like the sons of Eli did. And they didn't realize that with great power comes great responsibility. Seriously. Wow, no one's ever heard that before? Okay, all right, we're going to move on. So all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel. And they said, hey, you're old. Your sons aren't walking in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. We don't want to be a kingdom with God as our king. We want to be a kingdom with some man, some leader, some human as our king, just like all the nations around us. And when they said that, give us a king to us, it displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people who are saying to you, it's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as king. And again, they, they said, hey, we don't want God as our king. And any time we do that, which is, is still the true same thing today, like we said, there are many congregations that will call themselves and say, yeah, we're a God-honoring, Christ-following congregation, but we don't want to accept all of this as the word of God. We're a God-honoring, Christ-following congregation, but we don't want to do some of the things that God asks us to do. 
We're God-honoring, Christ-following congregation, but we don't expect our pastors to say, thus saith the Lord. We want them to say, thus saith us, because this is what we want to hear. And we do the same thing they do. We, we choose and we say, hey, do we want God's peace or, or do we want the, the political division that comes whenever you have a man in power? Because anytime there's a man in power over a church, over a nation, over a city, there's going to be people that like him. There's going to be people that don't. There's going to be political division. And, and, and as I was sharing with you, and I think it's okay to share this because I'm not sharing any names, a lot of the small church pastors, you'd be surprised, you would think, in big churches, and I've been a part of a church of 3,000, sat on the board, uh, preached there, shared. But in those churches, there's less division. There's small little power grabs. I want to do this. I want to do that. But there's usually an easier way to resolve it. It's in the smaller churches and some of the smaller families where there's so much division because they can't come to a, a resolution on how to do a certain thing. And so rather than hey, let's work this out or let's table it and we'll come back to it later, they divide and they get angry. And usually in a church, they blame the pastor. And the same is true. Do you want God's power or the power struggles or do you want God's unlimited resources versus the round-the-clock debt? And I've shared this, especially over the last couple of months because we've been you know, moving towards and, and just completed our, our annual budget meeting that um, I'm just extremely grateful for the financial blessing that God has blessed us with through your tithes and offerings. And I was looking when we did our annual budget that the amount of money that we had saved tripled between last year and this year. And granted, some of that is because the board won't let me spend as much as I want to spend, but that's a good thing. That's, that's always a good thing, that we have God-honoring people and, and whatever, and we walk away from every meeting. Hey, here's, here's our idea. We want to be in unison about what God wants, although I'm still a little salty about the helicopter, trying to get over it. But the idea is that, hey, we're, we're going to acknowledge that every single thing that we have comes from God. Every human resource that we have, and you'll look around, it's not like there's thousands or hundreds or a whole lot of human resources comes from God. So then we need to acknowledge every way that we spend it or use it or everything that we do needs to be, have God's blessing on it. And then what God tells them is the same thing that God tells to us today. Because when they chose to reject God, then Samuel said, hey, here's what God told me to tell you, prophet, thus saith the Lord. Here's all the things. You want a human king? Here's all the things that he's going to do. There's the power struggles, the division. He's going to have you working for him. He's going to tax you like crazy, all that stuff. But then he said, make sure, God said, make sure you tell the people this. When the day comes, you're going to cry out for relief from that king. And the Lord's not going to answer. It's not that he doesn't love you. It's that he loves you enough to honor your choices rather than to force you into his kingdom. And as the band comes up, let me close with this thought. And I'm not going to put the verse up there, but this is, this is the conversation Joshua had with the people of Israel as he was preparing for his end of life. He went before all the people and he said, you have to choose who you're going to serve this day. You could serve uh, the gods of all these other nations, 
You could become a part of all these other nations and have a different king. Or you could serve the God who has blessed you and has shown up for you and has loved you. And he says, no matter what you guys do, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And God extends that same invitation to every single person on the planet, not just to those of you here in this room, every single person. He says, hey, if you choose to reject me, I'm not going to force you into my kingdom. I'm not going to force you to get up on Sunday morning and go to church. I know there's good things on TV. There's lots of great brunch places, a lot of other options you have on Sunday morning. But if you choose to be a part of my kingdom, then yeah. I'm going to show you my unconditional love, my grace, my mercy, and my forgiveness. But if you choose not to, there's going to come a point where you're going to be like, where is God? How come God didn't help me? Where is this? God's going to say, I'm not your God because you rejected me and I'm honoring your choice. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head. God, we lift up. your willingness to look at us and love us and extend forgiveness to us despite the fact that we truly do not deserve it. We are grateful that you extend your mercy to us and you extend forgiveness to us and you invite us to be a part of your kingdom even though we truly do not deserve it. We are extremely grateful and blessed that all of your power, all of your love, and especially today, all of your peace is available to us, to everyone that wants to be a part of your kingdom, that wants to have a relationship with you, even though we truly do not deserve it, but you know that we need it. And we pray that none of us would leave here today without accepting your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy, and love without acknowledging that there is a God who loved us, and yes, a God who has rules and regulations for his kingdom, just as everyone does. But the most simplest one is that all we have to do is ask, and we can be a part of your kingdom today. For that, we give you praise, and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 enough to send your son to be the perfect savior, the blood that washed us white. That you as Abba Father loved us enough to allow us to be a part of your kingdom. That you didn't condemn us for the wrongs and the transgressions and the sins that we have that separate us from you. Instead, you sent your son to be the sacrifice so that we could draw closer to you. God, we pray that even as we leave here today, that not only do we leave here knowing that there is a God that loves us, but that we take that message of hope to the world, to those in our homes, in our schools, in our 
places where we hang out, the grocery store, the restaurants, everyone in our circle of influence, that we share with them this message of hope and love and the freedom and the king who loves us enough to allow us to be a part of his kingdom. Now we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 Thank you guys. Pray that you have an awesome rest of your Sunday. God bless and see you next week. And before I forget, hang out, stay, and there's uh, hot dogs and I think some hamburgers and pasta uh, from the cookout. It's not the award-winning burger, but it's close. Enjoy. God bless. Thank you.